Beloved congregation, turn with me a moment to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, and we will briefly focus on verse 16 by way of introduction. Revelation 22, verse 16. There we read, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. What makes this passage so remarkable, congregation, is that not only do we find this in the concluding verses of Scripture, but in this final chapter, we meet a speaking Christ. Christ speaks for the last time in this chapter. And this verse is the last of the I am statements of Christ. We know that in the Gospel of John, in seven different ways, he says, I am, and identifies himself as Jehovah, the I am that I am, Jehovah in the flesh. But those are not the only I am statements. This is the final one, and this one is profoundly significant. Look what Jesus is saying here. First of all, again, I am. So immediately giving us his identity, that identity that is woven throughout the entire word of God. This, will, this connects him to all the references of the Old Testament where we find that name of the Lord in capital letters. And boys and girls, that name occurs 6,575 times in the Old Testament. Lord in capital letters. That name is woven throughout the Old Testament. And again, I remind you of the significance of all that. That's why I keep referring to that name as the gospel name of God. And all of that comes together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am. But look what he says about himself. He says, I am the root and offspring of David. Do you realize that in that simple statement, Christ summarizes the entire word of God? In this simple statement, Christ unveils to us once more who he is. Because it clearly speaks of his two natures. His two natures, God and man. And remember, that's who he is. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Because in his divine nature, he is the root of David. He is David's God. But in his human nature, he is the offspring of David. He is David's son. So as the eternal son of God, he is David's root. But as... Jesus, as the one who came into the flesh, he is David's offspring. And so he is saying, in one, one last time, one last time, he unveils to us who he is. He is saying, at the very end of Scripture, as it were, as the bottom line of all revealed truth, I am the root and offspring of David. And what's amazing, that he, 
is not ashamed to identify himself with David. David. Of all people, David. How remarkable that he ends his word, that in his final declaration about himself, he aligns himself with David. And when we think of David, we think of him as the sweet psalmist of Israel. When we think of David, we think of him as the man after God's own heart. But as we will see today, that David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. David was a thief. David was a man who had made himself utterly worthy of being forever discredited by God. And yet, the Bible ends. And Jesus, in his final declaration about himself, he says, I want to be known. I want to be known by my church as the root and as the offspring of David. And all of this came about, the fact that he is the offspring of David, came about again in circumstances that were so stained with sin, as we consider today the story surrounding Bathsheba, the fourth mother of Christ, who is mentioned in the book of Matthew. And so let me read again Matthew 1, verse 6. It says, And Jesse begat David the king. Then David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. So that fact is forever connected to who David is. He begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias, Bathsheba. And so with God's help, we're going to look at Bathsheba in two ways. First of all, we're going to look at her as the mother of Solomon's brother, the child that was born as a result of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon's brother, conceived in sin. Secondly, the mother of King Solomon. And there we see the grace of God. The mother of Solomon's brother and the mother of King Solomon. Bathsheba, her original name is really Bathsheba, and it literally means the seventh daughter. And who was this Bathsheba? Well, over and over again, Scripture says she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 3, we read, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so Uriah was not an Israelite by birth. He was one of the sons of Heth. And so he was a descendant of Ham, the son of Noah. He was a son of Canaan. But he has a wonderful name, because Uriah means Jehovah is my light. 
Very similar to what we find in Psalm 27, verse 1. And so most commentators believe that Uriah was a God-fearing man who had embraced the God of Israel and who had adopted this Jewish name, Uriah. God is my light. And of course, what we know about Uriah, that he was a very faithful, loyal man. We have every reason to believe from the parable that Nathan tells that he was very fond of his beautiful wife Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. And see, both Uriah and Eliam were part of David's inner circle. They were his special captains, his special guard. And so Eliam and Uriah knew each other well, and as a result of that relationship, no doubt he became acquainted with Eliam's daughter, Bathsheba, and Bathsheba became his wife. What we also know about Bathsheba, that she was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Because in 2 Samuel 23, verse 8, we read, These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite, Uriah the Hittite, 30 and 7 in all. Now, why is that an important detail? Well, that explains why Ahithophel turned against David under the rebellion of Absalom. He so despised David because what he had done to his granddaughter that when Absalom rebelled, he joined forces with Absalom as an act of revenge for what he had done to his granddaughter. Uriah the Hittite. He was an obscure member of God's household. A man who proved himself to be a man of utmost integrity. A man when David so deviously tried to get him involved in this web of deceit to cover up his sin, who refused to yield, and who said, how shall I sleep with my wife when the men of Israel are in the battlefield? And that gives us an insight of the character of this man who had a beautiful name and who by his conduct, by that simple fact that Scripture reveals of him, showed that his religion was not just a matter of the outside. Even though he was not an Israelite by birth, he was an Israelite at heart. And then, of course, chapter 11 chronicles for us this horrible sequence of events. When David should have been with his army, he remained back home. And then, this wretched moment. Most believe that David by now is about 50 years old. David had accomplished much. And the Lord reminded him through Nathan, I gave you everything you needed. I blessed you abundantly. And if you would have desired more from me, I would have granted it to you. But if ever we see that the greatest saint is always vulnerable to sin, that at any given moment, God's children can fall into unspeakable sin. 
Let us never ever think that we are beyond this. That's how vulnerable we are. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ taught us for an important reason that when we pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and from the evil one. That's why we always need to be on guard, congregation. We need to understand that the flesh of a believer is as depraved as the flesh of an unbeliever. Our flesh is flesh. And our flesh is attracted to sin. When I was a young man, one of my elders said to me, I never forgot it, he said, always pray that if the desire to sin is there, that God will keep you from the opportunity to sin. And when the opportunity to sin is there, that he will keep the desire from you. Because he said to me, when the opportunity and the desire to sin, when those two come together, we fall. That's what happened. That's what happened to David. In James 1, verse 14 and 15, we read, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That's what happened here. He was drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then he says, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Which is exactly what happened as a result of all of this. You see, our heart, our heart, our flesh is like a powder keg. And all we need is one spark and our hearts will explode in sin. David could have never imagined at the beginning of that day that he would do what he did. Not only did he lust after Bathsheba, he committed adultery with her. And then begins this, this unspeakable cover-up where he seeks to cover up his sin when Bathsheba informs him, I am with child. And so he begins, as you well know, brings Uriah from the battlefield. And when all of that fails, he orders Joab to put Uriah in a position where he most surely would be shot to death. And so it happened. That's why God said to David, you have killed him. You have used the sword of the Ammonite to kill Uriah the Hittite. You killed him. So he was guilty of lusting. He was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of stealing another man's wife. He was guilty of covering up his sin. He was guilty of murdering Uriah. And he thought that he was able to cover it all up. And when her, it says in verse 27 of chapter 11, and when the morning was past, and so typically they would mourn seven days. David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and bare him a son. But, but, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord saw to it that this sin would not remain secret. The Lord saw to it that this sin would be fully exposed as a matter of fact, congregation, 
David thought he could do all of this secretly. David thought he could get away with this. And more than 3,000 years later, we're still talking about what he did. We have a permanent record of what he tried to cover up. And as long as the world stands, wherever the Bible will be, people will know about what David did. He thought he could be in secret. I read a quote in one of my commentaries, and it said, a private sin, listen carefully, a private sin is a scandal in heaven. Think about that. A private sin is a scandal in heaven. That's how we have to view our sin. And so it was with David. And so Jehovah exposed this sin by giving conception. Then, of course, Nathan comes. Nathan comes after the child has been born, which means that during the entire pregnancy of Bathsheba, David lived far from his God. And we know that from Psalm 32. But we also know from Psalm 32 that he was profoundly miserable. Somehow it gnawed at him. And yet he did not repent. That's how sin hardens us, congregation. That's how sin can even harden a child of God. David did not cease to be a child of God. But his fellowship, his communion with God was broken. That's why when he penned Psalm 51, as the expression of his contrition, of his deep sorrow, and of his repentance, he said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He had not lost his salvation, but he had lost the joy of his salvation. And then it says so beautifully that that Lord, whom he had so displeased, whom he had so dishonored, who said, not only you have despised my commandment, think about that. He said, you have despised me. Congregation, that's what sin is. Your and my sin God views our sin as an act whereby we not only despise His commandments, but we despise Him. That's what makes sin so ugly. And that's what makes sin so very offensive. And yet, this covenant-keeping God, Lord in capital letters, did not abandon David. He will never forsake the work of his own hands. And when God's children fall in sin, he will always bring them back. Peter, he denied his master three times. He had turned away from Jesus, but Jesus did not turn away from him. Jesus turned around and he looked at Peter with an inexpressible look penetrated Peter's soul so much that he went that he wept bitterly over what he had done. And now God uses Nathan to bring David back to his spiritual senses. What a risky assignment this was 
for Nathan. Nathan lived in a culture where kings were absolute sovereign. They could do with people as they pleased. And if Nathan would have come to Nebuchadnezzar, he would have died on the spot. But not so with David. The story was powerful. It worked. He got David's attention. And David was filled with anger. He said, as the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And then boldly, Nathan says, thou art the man. Thou art the man. Congregation, has God's word ever so registered in your soul? I can assure you that when God works savingly, when the Holy Spirit works savingly, that will become a reality to us as well. Because then the Word of God will say to us, you are that man, you are the sinner, you are the one that has transgressed God's commandments, you are the one that has despised God Himself. Oh, you have despised me, the Lord said. Has that ever ever become painfully real to you? And then we see how God used this. How he used this to bring David to the right place. Because what happens? When Nathan said, you are the man, then David said to Nathan, it's interesting. First you see, Nathan said to David... David said to Nathan, and Nathan said to David. Nathan said to David, thou art a man. Or Nathan, and then Nathan said, and then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. A very simple confession, yet, yet so profoundly significant. Notice, he doesn't just say, I have sinned. That's one thing for him to have admitted, I have sinned. No, I have sinned against the Lord with capital letters. I have sinned against the God of my salvation. I have sinned against Jehovah. I have sinned against light. I have grieved Jehovah. I have sinned against him. And of course, we know that Psalm 51, it's clearly stated was penned as a result of all of this. And what does he say there? He said again, Thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Most commentators believe that as a result of this whole episode, that he penned Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, and possibly even Psalm 130. So genuine was his repentance. I have sinned against the Lord. And again, no matter what your circumstances may be, every true believer can relate to that confession. When God works savingly in us, this becomes real to us against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. But now what's so beautiful, what is so beautiful, congregation, that right away Nathan has another message from 
the Lord, the God of salvation. And he said, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. So Nathan has a message. This God whom you have despised, this God against whom you have sinned, this God, I have a message, this God has pardoned you. And so God pardons an adulterer and a murderer. That's why he added, and thou shalt not die. Because God's law demanded the death of an adulterer and of a murderer. So David had forfeited the right to live. That's the story here. David, an adulterer, a murderer, a deceitful man, the great-great-grandson of a harlot. That's David's identity. That's who he was. And yet, the moment he confesses his sin, the moment he says, I have sinned against the Lord, the Lord immediately, by way of, by the mouth of Nathan, immediately grants him a full and complete pardon of his sin and his transgression. And he blots it out. What an amazing illustration of the character of God. If ever we see that God is a God who is ready to pardon, here we see it. Here we see the illustration that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So amazing is the pardoning grace of God. So ready God is to pardon. This is who He is. This is, a char- this is God's character. God is not a God who reluctantly pardons. God is not a God who rarely pardons. But God is a God who delights to pardon. What an encouragement for us. That no matter how deeply we fall, and who knows what you and I have been through this week. Perhaps you have stumbled this week. Perhaps you have thought or said or done things of which you are greatly ashamed. And then the Word of God comes to you and says, Thou art a man. And why? Because God wants to bring you to your knees. He wants to bring you to that place where David was, where he said, Lord, I have sinned against thee. I have sinned against the Lord. And that I may proclaim to you what Nathan proclaimed to David. My dear friends, when we own our transgressions before God, when we confess our sins, I once read a beautiful statement about what it means to confess your sins. You know what it means to confess your sins? That means you indict yourself. True confession is self-indictment. That means you indict yourself before God. That's what David did. The moment he does, God grants a full and free pardon. That's the fundamental truth that God wanted to teach Israel by means of the morning and evening sacrifice. He wanted to teach them 
his character. He wanted them to know that on the basis of shed blood, he was always ready to pardon them, no matter how much they had sinned, no matter how much they had failed. And so it was here. And, how, and so at this now we, we connect with, with Christ. How could God pardon this adulterer, this deceiver, this murderer? How could God pardon him? And then the amazing reality is that out of this sordid situation, out of these wretched circumstances, ultimately comes the very Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for whose sake God was able to pardon David the adulterer, and the murderer. So out of this wretched situation ultimately comes the Messiah in the fullness of time. And David's great son would be nailed to the accursed cross and would give his life also for the sins of him of whom he unashamedly said, I am the root and I am the offspring of David. And yet, we see that God deals with his sin. Because even though God loved David, and though he pardoned him, he hated his sin. And there are some sins, congregation, there are some sins that though, even though God will forgive us, we have to live with the consequences of that sin for the remainder of our lives. I've got a nice illustration. It says, you can pound a piece of nail into wood, and you can pull the nail out, but the hole will remain. The hole will remain. And that's, of course, and that God said to him, the sword will not depart from your house. David had said boldly, he shall restore unto him the lamb fourfold. David lost four sons as a result of this. The child of Bathsheba, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonai. He lost four sons as a result of this sin. Fourfold. Fourfold. But now comes the amazing truth of God's grace. That Bathsheba, Bathsheba now becomes his wife. We read that he, he, he comforted her after the child died. He comforted her after, Jesus, after David had gone to the house of God to worship the Lord. He comforts her. You can imagine how troubled this woman must have been how she realized that she had betrayed her husband, the shame that must have filled her, the loss of this child, and the fear of abandonment. Any other king in that world would have just dumped her like a piece of garbage. But not so David, the man after God's own heart, after all. He comforts her with the comfort with which he had been comforted comforted her with the knowledge that God had forgiven him his sin. Verse 13 and verse 20, he had gone into the house of God to worship the Lord. 
And many commentators believe that as a result of that worship, Psalm 51 flowed from his pen. Psalm 32 flowed from his pen, comforting her with the comfort with which God had comforted her. Comforting her with the knowledge of verse 23. When he told her, I can, I will once go to the son that I lost. He will not return to me, but I will once go to him. Because David believed that this child conceived in sin was one of God's own. And so Bathsheba becomes his wife. And then remarkably, David not only lost four sons, but through Bathsheba, he gained four sons. And of those four, two of them are fathers of Christ. So we read in 1 Chronicles 3, verse 5, And these were born unto him in Jerusalem. These are the sons of, Bath- of David and Bathsheba, Shimea, Shobab, and Nathan, and Solomon, four of Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. And we know from Luke 3, verse 31, remember there are two genealogies, Matthew 1, that gives us the line to Joseph, and Luke 3 is most likely the genealogy of Mary. So in Matthew, we have the name of Solomon, and then in the genealogy of Luke 3, we read that, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. And so God sovereignly brings this woman, Bathsheba, the wife of Urias, brings her sovereignly into the genealogy of his son in the fullness of time. And she becomes the mother of two men who are recorded in Scripture as the fathers of Christ. And so again, what do we see? What we have learned with all the other mothers of Christ, that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So in judgment, David lost four of his sons. He paid fourfold for what he did. But God also gave him four sons, two of which became the fathers of Christ. That brings us to our second thought, that Bathsheba is the mother of King Solomon. And so we read in verse 24, and David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. Now she's referred to as his wife. And went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son. And he called his name Solomon. Solomon, which means literally peaceful, full of peace. What a special moment. God gave conception again, but this time in his favor. Now David and Bathsheba experienced the grace of God. And by the birth of that child, God affirmed that he had pardoned both of them unconditionally. Two great sinners, because Bathsheba was also guilty, two great sinners brought together sovereignly by God and now blessed with the birth of Solomon. And this child was very, very special. 
Some commentators believe that when David worshipped the Lord after his first child died, that God revealed to him that he would receive another son because later David repeatedly emphasizes the fact that God had communicated to him that through Solomon, his son, that his kingdom would be built. And that's why Nathan, Nathan now comes again. It says, we read in verse 25, and he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedediah. And then this beautiful phrase, this beautiful phrase that sums up everything, because of the Lord. That's it. That's the bottom line here, because of the Lord. Jedediah. This was God's name, God's appointed name for Solomon. What a beautiful name that is, congregation. Because you know what that name is? It's a combination of Jehovah and David. It was as if the Lord said, this is also my David. And the name David means beloved. So Jedediah is Jehovah's David. Jedediah means Jehovah's beloved one, or very simply, Jehovah's darling. That's the name God gave to this child. It's very significant. We know that Solomon fell into great sin, and yet when you read Chronicles 22 all the way to the end of 1 Chronicles, read those chapters, and then read how, how Scripture speaks about Solomon, God's testimony about Solomon, Jedediah, his beloved one. And so that fact that God himself sent his servant, the same who said, thou art a man, who now comes and says to David, God has a special name for your son, Jedediah. Another affirmation that God had fully and freely pardoned him. Later in Nehemiah 13, verse 26, Nehemiah says this, Among many nations was there no king like him, like Solomon, who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel, who was beloved of his God. As we will see in a moment, this is ultimately what is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is Jehovah's Jedediah. Je the Lord Jesus Christ was the Father's well-beloved Son of whom He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased. And therefore Solomon, born out of this marriage that started in sin, was the man by whom God would accomplish His Good pleasure. Open your Bibles and read with me from 1 Chronicles 22. 1 Chronicles 22. And then we also look at, we'll look at a passage in 1 Chronicles 28. 1 Chronicles 22, verses 9 and 10, and we read this. And this is David recounting what has happened. This is David's own summary of what has happened. Behold, a son shall be born to thee. This is what God told him. A son shall be born to thee who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, 
and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. And it all started with David and Bathsheba committing adultery. All of this came out of it. First Chronicles 28, First Chronicles 28, verse 5. Again, David speaking here, and he says, And of all my sons, for the Lord hath given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And so there you see that in spite of sin, God accomplishes his purpose also today. And he overrules our sin. That's what Joseph said to his brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He overruled their sin and brought good out of all of it. Had this not happened to Joseph, the house of Jacob would have perished. There would have been no Savior, no Redeemer. And even when it came to the death of Christ, when Peter speaks on the day of Pentecost... He says, you with wicked hands, you have slain the Messiah, but it was according to God's determinate counsel. And so it was according to God's determinate counsel that out of this marriage would come forth those men who would be the fathers of his son in the fullness of time. That's why later Bathsheba again plays a very important role. Now after Solomon has been or is actually exalted to the throne. Because Solomon's life was in danger. Because Adonijah was plotting to take the throne away from him. So turn with me to 1 Kings 1. 1 Kings 1 verse 28 through 31. 1 Kings 1 verse 28 through 31. There we read this. Then King David answered and said, Call me Bathsheba. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore and said, As the Lord liveth that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swear unto thee by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead. Even so will I certainly do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and did reverence to the king and said, Let my Lord King David live forever. Because we read in 1 Kings 1, when Bathsheba comes and when she wants to speak to Solomon, she says, Now therefore, come, let me, I pray thee, give thee counsel that thou mayest save thine own life and the life of thy son Solomon. It is Nathan, I'm sorry. Nathan comes to Bathsheba. He says, do you know what's going on? And do you realize that if Adonijah succeeds, you will perish. You and your son will perish. And so everything was at stake here. And so God overrules this. In other words, here is Satan at work to eliminate this man to keep him from becoming king so that God's purposes will fail. And that, of course, has been Satan's work throughout the Old Testament, who in every conceivable way sought to prevent the coming of Christ, 
And so God again uses Bathsheba now to speak to David about this potential threat. But that's not where it ends. After Solomon is installed as king, then Adonijah comes to Bathsheba. And through Bathsheba, he tries to connect with Solomon. And he asks a a seemingly innocent question. Can you talk to Solomon? Can you see if he can give me Abishag, this young woman that took care of David and to be my wife? And Solomon saw right through it. He saw right through it. He saw this was another subtle way in which Adonijah tried to communicate to Solomon. I am the one that should have been king. And Solomon realized that he had to eliminate Adonijah because he would have no doubt fomented a rebellion like Absalom did towards his father. So two times Bathsheba played an important role to prevent Satan from eliminating Solomon. Because had Solomon been eliminated, then God's promises would have failed. So God used her to overthrow the counsel of men. Psalm 33, the Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. And so Bathsheba, just like Tamar, just like Rahab, just like Ruth, is a woman through whom the greater Jedediah would come into the world. Because that was God's ultimate objective. That in the fullness of time, his Jedediah, the son of his love, would become a man. So that he could be our Emmanuel. And God testified to that. The baptism of Christ, when Christ was formally installed as Israel's Messiah. And the heavens open and say, this, this is my beloved son. This is my Jedediah in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus himself makes the connection to Solomon. In Matthew 12, verse 42, we read, she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Oh, how amazing, congregation. How amazing is the grace of God. I've said that repeatedly. It's so impressive to see that here again so remarkably. And so out of all of this came the Christ whose birth we will commemorate on the day of tomorrow. The congregation. What an encouragement to see that ultimately God's plan cannot fail. God's purpose cannot fail. Oh, what do you think? What do you think of Solomon's great son? Is he your beloved one as well? Because that's what happens in the saving work of the Holy Spirit. Then we love the one whom the Father loves. Then we echo the words of the Father who said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
And every believer will say, Lord, I am well pleased with thy beloved Son. But how does that happen? Because by nature, we have no interest in this Christ. By nature, we are no different than the vast majority of our Western world who celebrate Christmas in an utterly carnal way, who are clueless as to what this is all about. But when the Spirit of God works savingly, and when He makes room for this Jedediah, when He makes room for this Christ, who came forth from David and Bathsheba, He will see to it that we become completely displeased with ourselves. Because only when we are displeased with ourselves, only then will we be well pleased with God's well beloved Son. Only then will He become precious. Only then will He become the altogether lovely one and the chiefest among 10,000. And so I could put it this way that all Christians have this in common. No matter who we are, no matter what your story is, they all have this in common, that they are displeased with themselves and they are well pleased with Christ, the greater Jedediah, God's well-beloved Son. So I ask you, is that the story of your life? Does that describe you, congregation? Many, many speak of Jesus. But I fear that many speak of him and have no clue what they're talking about. Those, two are, those are two sides of one coin, to be displeased with yourself and to be well-pleased with Christ. And what is spiritual growth? Is that we become more and more displeased with ourselves and we become more and more well-pleased with God's Jedediah with His well-beloved Son, in whom we find everything for our salvation. And so we have considered Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba. And hopefully I've been able to communicate that that genealogy, that opening statement of the New Testament, that genealogy contains the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that genealogy, Christ wants to be publicly known as the God of sinners. In order to save sinners, He came forth out of a generation of sinners. He made Himself of no reputation. He emptied Himself to be the Savior of sinners. And that's why we read in verse 21 those wonderful words, that thou shalt call His name Jesus. Why? Because He came to save His people from their sins. That's it. From their sins. He did not come to be a problem solver. He did not come to provide you with hell insurance and a ticket to heaven as the gospel is so cheapened. No, He came to save sinners. He came to save us from our sins. And even this genealogy so powerfully communicates who He is and why He came. That He is not ashamed to be called 
the offspring of David. I am the root and offspring of David. I am the Savior of sinners. I, the root of David, willingly became the offspring of David so that through me, God and sinners could be reconciled. And so let's conclude with the amazing doxology we find at the end of Romans 11. When we think of of Matthew 1, verse 1 through 17, and all that it contains, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to thee in the name of the greater Jedediah, thy well-beloved Son, in whom thou art well pleased. We give thee thanks, Lord, for thy precious word. Also for these opening verses in Matthew 1, which so powerfully proclaim the gospel to us, that the Son of Man came in the fullness of time to seek and to save that which was lost, who came to be the Savior of Tamar, of Rahab, of Ruth, of Bathsheba, and of a man like David, and of sinners like we are, Oh, may we never cease to marvel at this amazing grace. Who can fathom this? Who could have construed such a gospel? And so, Lord, we pray that this would register in our own hearts and that we, too, would be thoroughly displeased with ourselves and confess with David against thee, thee only have we sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And that we too would wholeheartedly confess that we are well pleased with thy beloved Son. Remember us. Bring us here again this evening. Our bless Dr. Kelderman as you will bring thy word to us tonight. And pardon our sins for Christ's sake. 